0: Pleased to welcome Texas Senator Ted Cruz to this program, elected to the Senate back in 2012. His tenure has been marked by hardline conservative policies, including a strong opposition, of course, to President Obama's health care law. In March, Senator Cruz announced his candidacy for the Republican nomination for president via Twitter, becoming the first official candidate in the 2016 race. And though Republican Field, the field, I should say, has grown quite large since then. He remains a strong contender, especially after his strong showing at the Faith and Freedom Conference in Washington just last week. Senator Cruz, an honor to have you on this program. Thank you. Good to, to see you, sir. Great to be with you. Uh, how did it feel? How did it feel? And did you intentionally want to be the first one out in either party?
1: Well, we certainly made a decision once mm-hmm. we decided to go forward that we were going to step out and run, and we were going to lead. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of people kind of do these exploratory committees, and and they dibble their toes in the water. We decided if we're going to do it, we're going to do it for real. Mm -hmm. And so we're campaigning hard and and
0: seeing incredible support. Yeah, Um, Your sense of how you hope, at least, Mm -hmm. since you announced via Twitter, that social media is going to elevate your campaign.
1: You know, I think social media is playing Mm -hmm. a huge part in in campaigns. You know, President Obama really pioneered the use Mm -hmm. of social media. When I ran for Senate in Texas, nobody gave us a prayer. I mean, Mm -hmm. when we started, I was at 2%. The margin of error was 3%. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, mean, it was, we were not supposed to have a chance. And actually, what we modeled our campaign after was Barack Obama's 2008 primary campaign against Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. In my race, there was a primary opponent who was unstoppable. All the money, all the bundlers, all the infrastructure was with my opponent, just like they were with Hillary Clinton. And what Obama did in 08 is he, he ran this grassroots guerrilla campaign that was incredible, empower the people, use social media to do it. I went and bought copies of Obama's campaign manager's mm-hmm. uh, book, The Audacity to Win, mm-hmm. and I gave it to our senior campaign team, said we're gonna do the same thing, use social media to empower people, and, and it's really a powerful mm-hmm. way to communicate.
0: How do you respond to folk who say that you wanna emulate his campaign strategy, but you've demonized him in almost every other aspect?
1: Well, you know, you know it's an interesting thing because I actually, I, I don't think we ought to be demonizing anybody mm-hmm. and, and so I remember I did an interview on, on one reporter who, who, who said to me you have said Barack Obama's public enemy number one and I laughed and said you know what I've never said that at all mm-hmm. T- to be honest I respect Barack Obama I, I think he profoundly believes the principles he's fighting for uh, now I, I happen to also believe that the principles he's fighting for have done enormous damage they're not working but I think he's a true believer I think his heart He believes he's advancing justice. It's just the policies he's put in place have hurt Americans. They have hurt Americans who are struggling. They've hurt the Hispanic community. They've hurt the African-American community. But but not only do I not demonize him, but but when, when people from the grassroots say negative things about him, I actually say, listen, he believes what he's doing,
0: but what he's doing doesn't work. It's wrong. I wanna come back to those policies later in our conversation. I, I wrote this down, I don't, not a blue card so of guys you can tell when I look you <laughs> in the eye, but I wrote this down because I wanna get this right. Because I, I don't know that I've seen a candidate in my lifetime where the opinions about him or her are so all over the map. Um, you've been called everything from a Tea Party Hawk by Bloomberg, to the Republican Barack Obama by Mother Jones, to a modern Jeremiah, that's your daddy. <laughs> Uh, To off-the-charts brilliant, and this is Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz is a flaming liberal, and as your law professor, when you were at Harvard, he still called you uh, off-the-charts brilliant. John McCain, your fellow senator, called you a wacko bird. (laughs) George P. Bush, the son of Jeb Bush, your uh, competitor now, called you the future of the Republican Party. Uh, Foreign policy has called you the most hated man in the Senate. And uh, Fox News, Megyn Kelly, once referred you as the most hated man in America. How do you explain that variance of opinion about you? And what does it say about who you are, who we think you are, who you might be?
1: Well, you know, I try not to pay attention to the good things people Mm -hmm. say or the bad things. Uh, I I try to remember I got a job to do, which is when I ran for the Senate, I, I committed to represent 27 million Texans, to fight for them. And so I try to listen to people back home. When I go back to the state, I travel the state, I listen to people, and, and, you know, I I will readily admit there have been people throwing rocks at me, both on the left and the right. You know, I get as many shots from Republicans as I do from Democrats. And some of that is the consequence of being in the arena. If you stand up and you fight for the principles you believe in, people are going to take shots at you. The easiest way never to be criticized is to just sit back in the corner and not say anything. And, and, you know, Tavis, what I've tried to do in office has has been real simple. It's been two things. One, tell the truth. And two, do what I said I would do. And I would say that is the most common thing I hear as I travel the country is people stop me all the time, even people who don't agree with me on a number of issues, people who are Democrats who say, look, I I don't agree with you on everything. But I'll say this, you're doing what you said you would do. And, And I think people are fed up with politicians who don't tell them the truth and don't actually follow through on what they say.
0: But when there are a a significant number of people and certainly party leaders Mm -hmm. who think that your brand of politics, (laughs) that your style is bad for the party, um, that it won't secondly allow you to win the nomination, but if it did allow you to win the nomination that you could never win in the general, how do you respond to people who think that your style, the way you play the game, is just out of bounds?
1: Well, I'll tell you, when it comes to style, my approach, I'm very much a happy warrior. Mm -hmm. In in my time in the Senate, to the best of my knowledge, I've never spoken an ill word of any senator, Republican or Democrat. When people throw rocks at me like those, those attacks, I don't respond in kind. When you suggested that I criticize Barack Obama, I didn't do that. I consistently try to keep the focus on substance and policy and what impacts people's lives. But I will say this, I've said for a long time, the biggest divide I believe we have politically, it's not between Republicans and Democrats. It's between career politicians in Washington, in both parties, and the American people. When you take on Washington, try to shine the light in the corruption, listen, in the last six years, what we've seen is the rich have gotten richer. The millionaires and billionaires, the top 1%, today the top 1% earn a higher share of our income than any year since 1928. The rich do great with big government. Those that walk the corridors of power in government, they've gotten fat and happy. But when you shine light on it, what I'm trying to do is bring power out of Washington and back to the people to help working men and women, millions of people that are struggling. You know, we've got the lowest percentage of Americans working since 1978. Working men and women are hurting. Median income has stagnated for 20 years. And so what I'm trying to do is take on what I call the Washington cartel the bipartisan corruption and when you do it they get ticked at you and they throw rocks at
0: you. I guess the question is how do your policies advance life, make life better for the poor, um, for the destitute, for the elderly and I raise that because as you well know the thing that most bankrupts Americans is health care and you have been just on this Obamacare issue, like nobody in Washington, mm-hmm. that is your signature mm-hmm. issue. If I could, if I had to choose, yeah, if you yeah. ask an American, no, who's the that's big fair. issue? It's health care. Mm-hmm. So you, you've criticized this o- o- Obamacare, as you all mm-hmm. like to call it. Mm-hmm. But if the Supreme Court were to undo Obamacare, as you all would like, millions of Americans now would be thrown into a tailspin mm-hmm. in this campaign because they wouldn't have any health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after criticizing it when your wife had to have a procedure you signed up for Obamacare <laughs> if and if that's not true then it's, let's that yeah let, let, that part let, is true let, that let, was misreported well let's set the record straight yeah. then here's your chance set the record straight did you sign up for Obamacare no no
1: that that that
0: part is not what, true. what did that story come from so what that story came from is my
1: wife left her job mm-hmm. when I when I announced for the for the campaign mm-hmm. and I was asked what are you going to do and I said we'll get we'll get new insurance and Since I'm a federal employee, the only place a federal employee can get insurance through his job is on Obamacare, and so all the press reported, ha ha, Cruz is going on Obamacare. What I ended up doing is, is just going and, and buy, buying an individual plan in the private market, so I'm not on Obamacare. But
0: you were no for, for a moment. When no, I never signed been, up for it. No,
1: never signed up for okay. it. The, the press just got that story okay. wrong.
0: So, so what's then, for, for those who know that you are opposed to Obamacare, mm-hmm. and you have a right to be opposed mm-hmm. if you want to, I certainly have had my critique of it. I think it's better than, than what we had, but it wasn't the universal care that he ran on. So I've had my own critique, yeah. but my motivations are different than yours. So what's your critique of Obamacare?
1: You know, you mentioned that the biggest thing that bankrupts people is health care, mm-hmm. and I think there's there's a much bigger thing that bankrupts people, which is the lack of an opportunity for a good job mm-hmm. and a high-paying job. Um, l- l- let me step back for a second. Sure. We can get into the details yeah. of Obamacare for a second, but you know, you started off with something that I very much agree with and I want to go back to, which is you said, how does this impact the most vulnerable among us? Let me tell you the reason I'm in politics. It's what I call opportunity conservatism, which is that I think every policy we think about, we talk about, mm-hmm. Should focus like a laser on exactly the question you ask: How does it impact people who are struggling—young people, Hispanics, African Americans, single moms, people who are struggling to climb the economic ladder? That's one of the things you've done. You've shined the light on poverty. I appreciate your leadership doing that. Thank you. You know, the sad reality is that Obamacare has been a disaster because it's the biggest job killer in this country. You know, one of the things I do, Tavis, when I go back to Texas is, is I do small business roundtables. I'll get. 20, 30 small business owners together in a room and just sit and listen to them. I don't yabber at them like politicians like to do. I just sit and listen to them. We've done a couple dozen of those. We have never done one of those when at least half of the small business owners didn't list Obamacare as the single biggest challenge in their employment. So for example, let let me recount one we did in Kerrville, Texas, a little Mm -hmm. town in the Hill Country, Central Texas. We were meeting in a restaurant bar. The first couple of people speaking were a husband and wife who owned the restaurant bar. And they said, we have a great opportunity to expand our business to just about double the size of our business. Mm-hmm. business from a business perspective, we think it's great. We've already passed up on it. The reason is because we've got between 30 and 40 employees. If we expand it, it would put us over 50 employees. Obamacare kicks in with 50 employees. And if we're under Obamacare, it'll drive us out of business, so we've already said no. The first four people sitting at that table all describe the exact same thing. Now, expand that over millions of small businesses across this country, all of which could be growing. And you know, the people that get hurt there, it's not the CEOs. Actually, the people that owned that restaurant bar were still doing fine. They were paying their mortgage. It's the busboy and the waitress and the janitor that they didn't hire. Millions of people that don't get jobs. There was another woman there who owned several fast food restaurants. She had enough restaurants that she had well more than 50 employees. She described how she had already forcibly reduced her employees' hours to 28 or 29 hours a week because the threshold for Obamacare is 30 hours a week. And, and she started choking up. She said, listen, a lot of our employees, they're single moms. They've been with us five, ten years. They can't feed their kids on 28 or 29 hours a week. But they can't feed their kids if I go to business either and, and, and Obamacare will bankrupt us. It is the biggest job killer in this country, the way to turn around poverty is to create an environment where small businesses are growing, where all those millions of small businesses are expanding, they're hiring people,
0: where wages are going up. I do not believe, respectfully, that Obamacare is the biggest job killer in this country. First of all, Obamacare just came on the books in the last four, you know, last 24 months. So one, it can't be the biggest job killer, number one. I think that's a bit, bit hyperb- a bit hyperbolic on your part, respectfully. It can't be the biggest job killer. But number two, perhaps the largest job killer in this country is American corporations who line the pockets of the Republican party around election season, the Koch brothers and others. Maybe the biggest job killer are American corporations shipping more jobs abroad and making more money here at home. Maybe the biggest job killer is minimum wage living versus a living wage that American families can live on. So Obamacare, and again, I mean, my, my, my record is clear on this. I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest fan of Obamacare myself. Yeah. But to call it the biggest killer and not American corporate greed, to call it the biggest killer and not minimum wage jobs, I mean, talk to me here.
1: Well, I mean, let's let's talk about giant corporations. Listen, one of the things that I have made a name for in Washington is taking on crony capitalism, Mm -hmm. taking on the giant corporations. And you're right. Somebody should. Both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are in bed with big money and wall street and the lobbyists in washington and part of the reason you've seen people throwing rocks at me is because i've taken that on look we shouldn't have government picking winners and losers we shouldn't have our tax money being given to fund giant corporations so for example i went to iowa to an agriculture summit they asked me about (laughs) ethanol mandates there were probably a dozen republican candidates there every one of them pledged their support for ethanol which is very popular Mm -hmm among the ethanol producers sure. in Iowa, I stood up and said, listen, I support ethanol, I support biofuels, but the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers. We should let the market decide. We shouldn't have it a question of who has the best lobbyist, who's, who's getting the most favor from politicians in Washington. And I was in a room of probably a 1,000 of the biggest ethanol producers in, in Iowa. I didn't know if they'd boo me, if mm-hmm. they'd throw tomatoes at me. And what I told folks, I said, you know, I recognize an awful lot of you all would like me to say something different. You'd like me to say I'm for the ethanol mandate forever and ever, amen? Mm -hmm. But every one of us has seen politicians that said one thing and done another. And when I told folks there, I said, listen, you can count on me for two things. I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to do what I said I would do. The entire room burst into applause. You know, when it comes to taking on the corporate welfare, that is a real problem. Mm -hmm. We've got right now a battle over the export-import bank which is hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer guarantees for foreign countries to buy products from giant American corporations, I gotta tell you, the Democratic Party is fighting tooth and nail to preserve that corporate welfare. I'm fighting to kill it. So I agree we need to take that on. But, you know, if you look at the effect in the last six and a half years, the economic policies we're doing,
0: they're not working. Well, why can't we raise the minimum wage to a living wage? Why won't you fight for that? Because, you know, the people who were hurt the most,
1: The the test you asked, how does it impact the most vulnerable? Every time you raise the minimum wage, the people who are hurt the most is the most vulnerable. So for example, the last time we we had this debate on the minimum wage, when President Obama wanted to raise it, the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan CBO, said that doing so will cost up to one million jobs, predominantly young, teenage African-American and Hispanic kids who are working.
0: Senator, these numbers, numbers don't lie, but people do. And the sad reality is that these people aren't working in the first place. We always want to go to the young and the underserved who are going to be the most hurt by this. It ain't like they're working right
1: now anyway. Well, It's, but, a, it's a
0: red herring. But you know what?
1: There are some of them, a lot fewer. You're right. Yeah. Black teenage unemployment has gone yeah. up. But I will say, you know, the lens I try to look at this is I look at it through the lens of my father.
0: Mm.
1: My father is from Cuba. He, he was in prison. He was tortured in Cuba as mm-hmm. a teenager. He fought in the Cuban Revolution, and in 1957 my dad fled Cuba. And he came to America, he was 18 years old. He couldn't speak English, he was broke, he had $100 that was sewn into his underwear. And his first job was washing dishes, making 50 cents an hour. And I try to think of every decision, how would it impact my dad if he were washing dishes? He worked full time, he paid his way through school, he ended up going on to start a small business. Today my dad is a pastor based out of Dallas. But when my father was washing dishes, when, we, when he was making 50 cents an hour, imagine they jacked up the minimum wage to $2 an hour. You know what would have happened? They'd have fired my dad and bought a dishwasher. You know, how, have you noticed when you go to restaurants now, you're seeing more and more, they have an iPad and you order on the iPad, what happens is when you jack up the minimum wage, the low-skilled entry-level positions, they eliminate it and replace it with technology.
0: But, but I, again, I think that's a red herring. Respectfully, technology is going to displace a certain amount of jobs anyway. So now you come back to this notion of how do we retrain the American workforce to do the work that needs to be done. But you can't, you can't say technology is the reason why everybody's losing their job because no, 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 that's going to happen it, anyway. It, it's
1: backwards. Yeah. What happens is when you price labor out of the market, people shift to technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it comes to minimum wage, there are very few families that are being supported by a minimum wage job over a long time period. You look at most of the minimum wage workers, you look mm-hmm. at who they are, they're often entry level workers. A lot of them are teenagers. It's the first job. Now, if you're a 16, 17-year-old kid, let's say you're coming from a tough background, tough neighborhood, that first job matters. When you learn mm-hmm. to show up on time, to punch a time <coughs> clock, to, to interact with customers, to be polite, those are important job skills. Now, if you have someone that starts you, know, I remember I met with a bunch of Burger King franchisees, mm-hmm. I, I, this one gentleman, it's a very impressive man, it was, it was an African-American man who had started flipping burgers at Burger King. And he, he worked there, and he worked a while, then he got promoted, and he got a higher job, then he became assistant manager, then he became manager, and, and now he's been able to purchase, I think it was two restaurants. Yeah. But he started flipping
0: burgers but the at pro- the Burger But King. the problem, Senator, is that it's not just, here's, here's what the party, your party, and others are missing. It's not just kids who are making minimum wage. It's everyday Americans who have gone to school, who have student loan debt, as you know now, yeah. exceeds credit card debt. They can't find a job, you go to an Ivy League school, you come out, you're working at an Apple store, you're a barrister at Starbucks somewhere. So this, these are not just kids making minimum wage. The, the, the new poor in this country, are the former middle class. So we're not just talking minimum wage for kids anymore. Well, and, Tavis,
1: look, I understand this firsthand. When I was in high school, my parents went bankrupt. So when I went off to college, at 17, I was financially independent involuntarily Mm -hmm. because they were broke. They went went bankrupt. So I ended up taking student loans. I came out of school with six figures in student loans, loans up to my IB.